This is Because I Said So, parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, John Roseman, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved. From American Family Radio, here's your host, John Roseman. Hello out there in American Family Radio land. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The show is called Because I Said So. It's all about parenting, a word I really don't like. I prefer just the old-fashioned vernacular, raising children. That's what you're doing. You're not parenting. This is not a science or a technology. It is something that God has well-equipped you for. In fact, you really don't need people like me telling you how to do it. But wait, don't turn me off. Please, that would hurt my feelings. If you're a first-time visitor to the program and you're wondering, who is this guy? Well, I'm a heretic psychologist, licensed by the North Carolina Psychology Board, don't believe in psychology. I believe, well, I don't believe, I know, I'm absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of doubt. Psychology is the reigning religion, secular religion of post-modernity. It is progressivism personified in a set of bogus concepts concerning human nature. These ideas concerning human nature are all formulated by atheists, every single major theorist in the history of psychology, beginning with Sigmund Freud, has been an atheist, many of them activist atheists. Example, B.F. Skinner, the father of behavior modification theory. Freud himself, the father of modern psychology, modern meaning modern in the sense of progressive, postmodern, relativistic, etc., etc., believed that uh, belief in a superior being, especially a superior being who was the creator of everything, was a mental illness. And yet, despite all that, uh, there are many people in the church and uh, even many Christian influencers who put some stock in psychology. Being a psychologist myself, holding a licensed practice psychology, duly issued by a recognized State of the Union, that uh, is nothing more than an example of how deceptive Satan can be. So uh, anyway, on this program, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I don't know, talk about a lot of things. I, I Generally speaking on this program, I plan to talk about things, and then I end up talking about uh, other things, uh, which seems to um, interest and amuse <laughs> a lot of uh, my listeners especially those who tune into the program weekly, if not when it broadcasts, which is on American Family Radio stations all across the country or stations that carry American Family Radio programming at 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time on Saturdays, every Saturday. Well, there, there are a few exceptions. If Christmas falls on a Saturday, then they generally don't run my show. The show is, by the way, pre-recorded because I'm a very active public speaker. Can't you tell? I'm so, uh, what would the word be? I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> Articulate would be the word. And most of my speaking engagements these days are in churches, and most of my speaking engagements take place on Sundays. 
in churches all over the country where I frequently occupy the pulpit on a Sunday morning and then do generally, this is my general MO, I do a three-hour parenting, there's that word again, a seminar uh, focusing primarily on effective disciplinary principles and approaches on Sunday afternoon. And so because of that, uh, on Saturday afternoon, I'm generally even, either in transit or I'm in a, a city other than my own hometown, New Bern, North Carolina, having dinner with my hosts in my hotel room, not watching television, by the way. I, I, I'm one of the few travelers who never turns on the television in a hotel room. I just don't like television. I, I, I loathe it, as a matter of fact. I find the, uh, the appliance uh, that we call a television uh, useful on occasion to watch movies, which I do on Netflix. And, and if the hotel has a Netflix portal, then I, I will usually watch a movie or I'll catch up on a British detective series. I'm addicted to those. But anyway, back to my point. So I can't record the show live. You see, that would require that I find in every city I'm in on a Saturday a receptive, uh, hospitable radio station that will allow me to broadcast between uh, 6 and 7 o'clock Eastern time or whatever the time it is, corresponding to that wherever I am in the country. And that would just be a monumental task. It would take up uh, entirely too much uh, space and time. So I don't have callers. I don't do interviews. But if you submit a question to radio at Rosemond, R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D. Don't forget that D. And it's M-O-N-M-O-N-D, not M-A-N-D or U-N-D or any of those other variations on the theme. If you go to radio at Rosemond.com, send an email to that email address with your question or your comments Concerning the show, ideas for future shows, I'll certainly read all of them and uh, may get around to reading your question on the air, which is what I'm going to do today. I've got this is an interesting question comes from uh, I don't know where somewhere in America. I assume we have a boy six and a girl nine who fight constantly about everything under the sun. My husband and I have a good marriage. We hardly ever have a serious disagreement about anything. So it's hard for us to understand what has led to our kids' inability to get along. In any case, their fighting has become very draining, especially to me because I homeschool. Good for you, by the way. And, if, and am with the children much more than is my husband. When they fight, I generally try to figure out which one of them was in the wrong and make him or her apologize. My husband thinks that's not helping. I just think it's good practice. What do you think? Well, it is an interesting question. And I'll begin with this, that uh, a much wiser man than I has said that forced apologies are morally meaningless. Forced apologies are mor morally meaningless. So when you say it to a child of whatever age, you know, that you insist that he apologize to his brother or sister or a playmate or someone. 
I seriously doubt that any lesson is being learned other than the lesson that if you uh, pretend to cooperate with adult authority figures in a situation like that, the pretense will be satisfying, which I dare say is not what you want the child to learn, but I dare say is probably what the child is learning, whether the child can articulate that learning or not. So anyway, obviously the shoe fits in the situation. You are forcing a child to apologize when, I mean, the fact of the matter is that the child in question does not feel that he or she was in the wrong, but I'll get to that in a minute. Well, no, I'll get to it right now. The child does not In other words, the child you are forcing to apologize, does anyone think that that child, I mean, we were, everyone listening to the show presumably was a child at one point in time. And most of you, including myself, have been as a child in that situation where an adult, usually our parents, maybe a teacher, has forced us to make an apology. Does anyone out there think that these apologies are sincere, that the child who is forced to apologize truly thinks that he or she was in the wrong? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Uh, When siblings have conflict, uh, children have conflict, but we're talking about sibling conflict here. When siblings have conflict, each of them thinks that he or she has been the victim of some insult or offense from the other. Folks, it it takes much more maturity and wisdom than is possessed by six- and nine-year-old children to see things from another person's point of view. So, is the apology that is being forced, in this case, by the mother, therefore sincere? No. I suppose an argument could be made that such forced apologies are, quote, good practice, end quote, but that, I maintain, is idealistic thinking. The fact is that these forced apologies are probably making matters worse. So, addressing the mother who has posed this very interesting question, what has led to your children's inability to get along? Is there innate, inborn self-centeredness, which is part and parcel of their innate, inborn, sinful nature? It is love of self that is the big stumbling block for human beings. It's been the stumbling block for me in my life. It's been the stumbling block for you in your life. Uh, it is the stumbling block for everybody in everybody's life lives. That is the root of all sin. Love of self prevents us from loving God with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and it prevents us from loving our neighbors as we do ourselves. And that love of self is what is at work here in the conflict that is ongoing between these two children, ages six and nine. And we're going to come back to this very provocative question, an interesting question, right after the break. I will tell you this, that there are dimensions to this question 
that uh, probably you haven't considered. And certainly the parents involved in this situation have not considered it, or they would not be asking the question. So once again, John Roseman for American Family Radio. Uh, uh, I will be back in uh, just a minute or so after this break from our sponsor, American Family Radio. Stay with me. Hey there, welcome back to the show. If uh, you, you are possibly just joining us, I'm, I'm talking uh, to a, a, a number of issues that were raised by a mother who submitted a question to me through the email that people use to submit questions to me, radio at rosemond.com. And um, in this letter, this mother talks about uh, her two children, ages six and nine, whom she homeschools, who are at each other's throats constantly. They uh, they argue, fight, bicker. Um, you know what what kids do? They call each other names. They uh, accuse one another of things. You know, they accuse one another of looking at them. <laughs> my, my daughter used to do that. She used to scream, Eric is looking at me. We have a big laugh about that today. It, it just got so, so tedious after a while. Eric is looking at me. And by the way, to this day, to this very, very day, uh, Amy, who is uh, something like 46 years old. No, she's 47. No, she's 40. What is she? She Yes, she's no, she's 45. Uh, 40, <laughs> 45, soon to be 46. <laughs> uh, it, it gets more and more difficult to remember birthdays, even my own, the older I get. Um, to this day, Amy insists Eric was looking at her. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, anyway, back to this woman's question. And I, I'm addressing her. Uh, you and your husband have obviously modeled what a properly loving relationship looks and sounds like. But as I've pointed out many times in my newspaper column, on this radio program, and public presentations across the country, everywhere I get the opportunity, in fact, parenting is not deterministic. In other words, you are not the cue ball in your child's life. That is a Freudian myth, the idea that parenting produces the person. Parenting does not produce the person. Uh, that's absurd, and, and we all know it's absurd. Uh, even, well, apparently we don't all know. I mean, at, at one level we all know, and at another level we don't. I will say to an audience, small group, say 30 people, if I'm you know, working with a small group, I'll say... Uh, Okay, what produces the person? Blank produces the person. Fill in the blank. And everybody goes, the way the child is raised, parenting, uh, you know, various variations on that theme. Wrong. We all know people who were raised well by upstanding moral people 
who did not have any significant moral blemishes. And these children, the children in question, or the child in question, turned out very badly. And on the other side of that coin, we all know of people who were raised extremely badly in horrifying circumstances by horrifyingly immoral, degenerate individuals uh, who turned out quite well. Uh, so parenting does not produce the person. Parenting is an influence in the development of the human being. But parenting is not the cue ball in a child's life. That is a Freudian myth. As parents of prior generations, my mother's generation and, and generations prior understood, every child has a mind of his own. That was one of the parenting aphorisms that uh, children, people in my generation, when we were children, we heard. We heard, uh, uh, you made this bed, you're going to lie in it. We heard, uh, money doesn't grow on trees. We heard, uh, I'm going to let you stew in your own juices about this. We heard children should be seen and not heard. We heard because I said so. And we heard every child has a mind of his own which in effect was a way of saying, and your parent usually said that to you, it was a way of saying, I, your parent, I am not responsible for what you did. Uh, you possess free will. Uh, you are responsible for what you did. Yes, parenting is an influence, and, and you know, under under proper circumstances, it needs to be, uh, parents need to make every effort to see to it that their influence is the major influence in their children's lives. But uh, every effort along those lines does not uh, make for a guaranteed outcome. Good parenting does not guarantee, in other words, a good outcome, and bad parenting does not guarantee a bad outcome. But, you know, we're talking here about probabilities, perhaps, but we're not talking by any means or any stretch about certainties. So back to addressing the mother who posed the question, neither of your children are interested in a good relationship with one another. They are simply not. Six-year-olds are captive to their self-centeredness, their sin natures. Uh, Nine-year-olds are captive to their sin natures. Uh, it takes a good amount of maturity to begin to untangle yourself from your sin nature. And I'm sorry, folks, but six- and nine-year-olds, I, I mean, you know, there may be a one out of a million exception to this. Uh, I'm, I'm reasonably sure there is. But uh, six- and nine-year-olds, generally speaking, more than just generally, almost universally speaking, do not possess that ability. They, they are captive to their sin natures. And again, the, the, the kernel, the, the, the primary feature of the sin nature of the human being is love of self. So neither of your children are interested in a good relationship. They each want their own way. They want to win. They want to be first in line. They want to get the biggest portion, and so on, and so on, and so forth. You and your husband want a good relationship, 
And because of that, each of you is willing to sacrifice self-interest for that purpose. For the purpose of having a good marriage, you are willing, each of you, to sacrifice self-image, to put yourself in the other person's shoes, to give up self-interest in order to make your partner happy at the moment, and so on and so forth. Your children are not capable of that, not at the ages of six and nine. It'll be more than a few years before they are capable of doing that. To put a relationship above self-interest with one another or anyone else, by the way. Now, let's get to this issue of parents refereeing sibling conflicts. Uh, When parents do that, when they step into a sibling conflict and they referee it, they listen to both sides of the story, and then they decide, well, uh, you, uh, they assign the roles of villain and victim. Uh, You are in the wrong, Billy, and you, Susie, are in the right, and Billy, you must apologize to Susie, things like that. Things always go from bad to worse. Concerning any given conflict situation, the sibling identified as the villain seeks to even the score. I'll say that again. Concerning any given conflict situation, the sibling identified by the well-intentioned parent as the villain seeks to even the score because he doesn't believe he was the villain. And the sibling identified as the victim seeks to make yet another score. Now, The interesting thing is, the villain does not believe he was the villain, but the victim believes he or she was, in fact, the victim. The role of victim is, this is a fact, addictive. It seeks constant satisfaction. It seeks to be fed. So when you identify one of your children as the victim In a sibling conflict situation, you are feeding the child's self-centeredness. And that role, the role of victim, becomes addicting. It satisfies the child's sin nature. I hope you're getting this, folks, because this is important. I don't think I can explain it any more clearly. Under the circumstances, the villain-victim paradigm in a sibling conflict situation is akin to a snowball rolling downhill and eventually becoming an avalanche. For this reason, I nearly always recommend that parents not engage in trying to determine who did it, whatever it is, who did what to whom, who said what, who looked at the other (laughs) sibling in a certain way, Eric's looking at me, and so on. Hold Both children equally accountable for disrupting the peace of the household. The first disruption of any given day, for example, could earn both children an hour in their respective rooms or separate rooms if they share space. That's the warning shot across the proverbial bow. The second infraction earns them confinement for the remainder of the day without electronic entertainment of any sort and early bedtime. In my experience, consistent enforcement of this consequence-based approach will begin to show good results within a couple of weeks, and full cure 
well, not full, but cure, effective cure within a couple of months. Although occasional, occasional enforcement may still be necessary for up to six months. The key is dispassion on your part. The emotional consequences of the problem must belong to the children and to the children alone. That, in fact, is a universal disciplinary principle. So that wraps it up uh, pretty much. This has been another exciting episode of Because I Said So with your host, John Rosemond. For more about me and my family ministry, you can go to johnrosemond.com, where you will find, among other things, my upcoming speaking schedule. I'm glad you could join us this week. God bless you. God bless your families. Please uh, join me next week, same time, same station, American Family Radio.